Sisters in Service. This is your host, Kat Corchado. And today we have Deshauna Barber. Now, you may not know that name right off the bat. Also, a veteran. You remember that, right? <laughs> so without further ado, hello, Deshauna. So nice to have you. So nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, so I always ask my people who come on to the show and I ask them about their service. So you were an, you are or were an Army veteran, correct? Captain in the Army Reserve. And I actually serve as a, you call it an associate professor of military science. So an APMS. Mm -hmm. um, so I serve as an APMS at Howard University's ROTC program, um, the Bison Battalion. So I basically go in there two days. I'm right now we're virtual at Howard, um, or at least through the ROTC program we are. So I go in two days a month um, and I train the future officers of the world. So these are all cadets. They are under, most of them are under military scholarships. Um, and they will commission if they stay through the program after four years and become officers in the military. What a great role model. That's awesome. So I always ask this question to you, your favorite assignment and your not so favorite assignment, if you have one. This is my favorite assignment. Um, well, actually, no, I, I took command of a petroleum lab unit in 2014. Uh, yeah, it was 2014 to 2017. Um, so I was a commander at the time. It was a little bit, I was a commander a little bit longer. Usually you're a commander for about two years, two and a half years. I actually had with this assignment for three and a half years. It's a little bit longer than I uh, wanted it to be. Uh, but for the most part, I actually say being a commander was probably my favorite, my absolute favorite position, although it came with a lot of, um, heavy responsibility. Mm. I think it was nice to be in control of, of a group of soldiers and commander that I wish I had had as an early, you know, early on lieutenant coming into the military. Right. Um, I've had a lot of bad examples of leadership. So uh, when I took command of this unit, it was very important to me to use those lessons that I experienced from seeing, you know, poor leadership and toxic leadership mm -hmm. and being able to kind of shift around how I interact with my soldiers and make it a very family oriented space. Absolutely. That that's a great way to, you know, approach, you know, being a role model, you know, as, as these young lieutenants and lieutenants to be and com future commanders of the military, you know, to see how mm -hmm. someone, you know, you have that favorite person and you're like, oh, I want to be like that. Cause that's, that's a great thing. And that's, what's needed still in our, in our services. So I read on your bio that your father is an army veteran, special forces. Whoa. Okay. That that's a big deal. But then I read, I was on the Swan website and I saw that your mother was in the army too. Yes. They actually both met at Fort Benning, uh, which is where I was born. Um, mm -hmm. But they both met at Fort Benning. My mom was uh, like a, a truck driver. So she would drive like LMTVs and Humvees and stuff. Um, and my dad, yes, was infantry and in SF. Um, he said that he saw her getting out of the LMTV and he looked at her and said, I know that's going to be my wife. So ended up shooting a shot. Everything worked out. <laughs> and three kids later. And the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> so it was really, really, really awesome. Um, 
that uh, both my parents served, I think, you know, come from somewhat of a patriotic family because it's not only my dad mm-hmm. and my mother, but it was also mm-hmm. my brother and sister served. So they actually joined as well. So it was all five of us uh, that served in the military. I'm the last person standing that's still in service. Everyone else has gotten out and become vets, but I'm the, the last person holding down the fort. <laughs> well, you're the first person I met that their entire immediate family was in the military, like serving or have served in the military. That's quite an accomplishment mm-hmm. too. And that says a lot about your parents, you know, mm-hmm. or was it a, you're going in the army. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> My siblings chose to enlist right out of high school. I, however, chose to go the ROTC route uh, mm-hmm. mostly because I wanted to serve, but I also wanted to, to have the college experience. And then I also, you know, thought the military would be a good way for me to be able to pay for uh four years of college. So that was another reason. So it had a lot of benefits um, in terms of the ROTC program at my alma mater. So that was really, really, really awesome for me to be able to combine the two. Absolutely. So let's switch gears a little bit. Tell me about when you first thought about going into pageants. Was it something you've always done? Was it something you just recently thought about or has this been like a thing you've been doing tell us a little bit about that so pageantry wasn't something that I was exposed to growing up I had never seen a pageant a day in my life until I was 19 years old and I was working at Target and a woman approached me and said you look like you could be the next Miss USA Uh, this wonderful woman ended up becoming a, a close friend of mine and a coach Um, in my early years of pageantry. And um, she somehow in this conversation convinced me to compete in my first state pageant, which I did, which was Miss Virginia USA. Mm -hmm. And I went through and competed for um, seven years. I competed each year, each pageant is once a year. And on my seventh try in my last year of eligibility, because you age out at 26. um, So I was 25 at the time Mm -hmm. that I competed on my seventh try. And I won Miss DC USA and then, you know, went on to win Miss USA. So it was a a long time coming. Um, I was coming into pageantry at 19 is a little bit late in the game, uh, mostly because a lot of pageant girls start off in their teen years Mm -hmm. um, and usually they're competing for teen titles. So at 19, it sounds early, but it's pretty late for most pageant girls. They've usually had a whole history of pageantry. Um, So I was kind of a amateur at it. And had to go through and really get a coach um, in my final year and finally invest the time into learning Mm -hmm. about uh, what I can do to make sure that I look my best on the stage, that I speak well, uh, that what I wear and and the way that I approach these judges is appealing to them. And eventually I got it right on the very last year that I could compete. So that was a, a real blessing for me. And then, you know, of course, went on to become the first soldier to win Miss USA and then went on to compete and place top nine at Miss Universe. So <clears throat> it was a really awesome experience. I think that m- growing up with two military parents, um, I grew up in somewhat of a, I wouldn't say, it, I wouldn't call it a feminine household. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was very much a, a tomboy and, and someone that, you know, was out with the out with the boys playing in trees and, you know, mm-hmm. in the woods. I was definitely a backwoods girl where, you know, a lot of my time was spent outside. So in terms of like dresses and makeup and dolls, that wasn't really my vibe uh, growing up. So pageantry gave me an opportunity to get in touch with a feminine side 
that I really didn't know that I had. And so I, you know, tried on my dress and, and got my makeup done and all these things that I've never really done before. So it was very intriguing to me to be able to see that side of myself kind of flourish. And um, I also think that it brings a different, a different uh, unique um, image to pageantry. Oftentimes we have this image set in our brains on, on what a pageant girl looks like, but right. to be honest, we're quite unique. And I think being able to show that there's one that's in the military uh, shows the versatility of women. Yes, it does. You know, and I know that during that time you had all these women, active duty and veterans going, yes. <laughs> so when you do these pageants, is is there a talent portion of it at all? Or is is the Miss USA, is that the one that has a talent port, part to it? Or no. As you can tell, I know nothing about pageants. <laughs> No, no, no. It's okay. You know, thankfully I was competing in Miss USA and it does not have a talent portion because I would have nothing to offer to people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm very thankful. It's Miss America uh, that has a talent competition. So Miss USA and Miss America are like Mm -hmm. Coke and Pepsi where the purpose is the same, but they're kind of totally different. Um, So yes, America has a talent. USA does not. Thankfully, which is why I avoided America at all costs because, you know, you have a lot of women (laughs) that really want to there. Right. No talent. And I'm just like, come up here and talk. If y'all hear me talk, that's my talent, but that's really all that I have to give you. Right. (laughs) It's, but it's interesting that this, you know, someone walked up to you and said, you know, you could be the next, you know, Miss USA. And no one ever said that to me, but you went with it. You were like, okay, let's try this. You know, a lot of people would be like, oh, no, thanks, but no. And you're like, hey. Let's let's do this. Let's see what this is about. Um, so was the Miss USA, was that harder than the other or is it along the same lines, just on a bigger stage? Harder than what others? Um, the other like the local pageants you were in, you know, how you're yes. in, is are, are there requirements more strict or. Is it more difficult because there's more people involved? And, and of course, it is a bigger stage because, you know, everyone sees that. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to know that part of it. So there's a, it's actually two, two sides of this. So it's tiers. So you compete at your state level. And if you win, mm-hmm. like, Miss Mississippi, you go and represent Mississippi at USA. And if you win right. USA, you go and represent USA universe and you compete against like over 80 different countries so the, the because it's different tiers the the competitive level increases every mm-hmm. stage you move up so that's one side of it uh but surprisingly which people ask me this sometimes like is it easier or is it harder what i found ironically mm-hmm. is that the competitive level increased but it actually became easier as you move up and, and mm. here's why. So when you compete for Miss DC, for example, where I, which is what I wanted, when you compete for Miss DC, you are competing as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, you, the, the coach that you get, you pay for the dress that you get, you pay for your makeup artist, you pay for your hair, you pay for it. everything is out of your pockets, out of your time. Of course. You know, so it's all <laughs> on you. Right? <laughs> Very difficult when it's just you. Nobody to help, right? But when you win Miss DC, there is an entire staff that they put behind you to prepare you for Miss USA. 
right? Oh, wow. So you have a dress sponsor, you have a makeup sponsor, you have a hair sponsor, an extension sponsor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a coach that's assigned to you that you do not have to pay for. Um, everything is given to you and you have a team that's in charge of preparing you for USA. When you get to USA and you're competing for universe, it's even easier because now you have an entire office of people that's placed behind you to prepare you mm-hmm. for Miss Universe. So Got you're it. not on your own, right? Thank goodness. So what I found, I would say the competitive level increases, mm-hmm. but it does get easier because of the teams that's placed behind you to prepare you for the stage. That's good to know. Not that I will, I'll probably be in a pageant in my next life, but it's interesting to me because I would see it. And you, you know, to me, I used to compete in sports and, and again, in each level, it gets harder. And, um, but pageantry, I was always intrigued by because the women look so beautiful and the dresses and everything. And, you know, you hear stories about pageants and stuff, you know, so coming from the very top, like you are, I just wanted you to elaborate a little bit on that. And thank you for letting our audience know more about um, the pageantry. I wanted to know about it, just saying, (laughs) because I think it's fascinating. So how did, take us back to when did the, the position of CEO for the Service Women Action Network. How did that come about? So that was actually, I think, fate for sure and destiny because um, in October 2019, I get a random email from Service Women's Action Network and it was their newsletter and it was a job announcement for the CEO position of SWAN. And um, this is an organization that I heard of prior email. I actually don't even know how I became a part of their, their distro. I had never signed up to receive emails from this organization. I'd never really heard of them. I had no idea how they got my email, no clue. Um, so, you know, I looked at it, I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. And, you know, I, right after Miss USA, I became a full-time motivational speaker and I've been speaking ever since, mm-hmm. um, since 2017. And, I knew that as I was approaching my third year as a full-time speaker, that it was great, you know, and I love speaking. I still speak to this day. COVID has kind of died it down a little bit, but I still speak. And what I found is that, you know, I felt like I wasn't really living in my truth. That speaking is great. It's a part of me. Mm-hmm. But even during my time as Miss USA, a lot of my platform was based in serving veterans. So when I got the email... I looked at it like, wow, this is quite interesting. A nonprofit organization, CEO position. They're based in DC where I'm located right now. You know, let's just shoot my shot and let me just apply and see what happens. Um, I applied. I went through um, a few months of vetting and and interviewing and ended up getting the job. And it's just so amazing because as soon as I get the job, I've had it for about two and a half, three months. And then COVID hits. Mm-hmm. And then I'm really a speaker anymore. Um, so my, my entire full-time position as a speaker was pretty much taken away because all of my gigs during 2020 were canceled. So I was able to actually, and, and although, it, you know, it sucked, but I was able to focus 100% on building SWAN. And, and that's kind of been my goal, even, you know, this year. And, and as I continue to become CEO, that speaking is great. Uh, but now I feel like I am really living in my truth. 
And um, especially when we're talking about women veterans, um, not only am I serving veterans, I'm serving women specifically um, who are the, the, the minority of the military. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is an amazing position to me. I, I love the, our board of directors. They're all very invested in what we do. And then I love our all women staff. They're also passionate about what we do. So I just, every day I wake up thankful and truly just happy with what I do, I, I feel like I really am living and operating in the shoes that I'm meant to walk in. So I'm, I'm just thankful to be in this position. Absolutely. For our audience, could you elaborate a little bit on what Swan's mission is? Absolutely. So we consider ourselves to be the voice of all military women, past, present, and future. Our organization is a research and advocacy based organization. So you'll have uh, veteran organizations that are maybe dedicated to homelessness. So if a veteran or a female veteran calls or any veteran calls and says, you know, I'm, I'm displaced and I have nowhere to stay, th- this organization might have an actual building with actual rooms, right? Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily our organization. Our organization is based in, again, research and advocacy, but mostly we try to get to the foundational issues behind veterans issues. So mostly what we do is probably like 90% legislation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are the go-to for a lot of congressmen and congresswomen that are looking to pass legislation that makes a long-term impact on veterans' lives. So basically everything that we do is, is in providing research and data that proves a disparity or proves an issue that we believe needs change. So that's one, one portion of us. The second mm-hmm. portion of us position. So what we have is case management and our resource portals, like our secondary, where as an organization, we found that a lot of these VSOs, uh, veteran service organizations, a lot of them are very male focused in their resources and their services. You'll call around and you're looking for something that's, you know, women specific services. And a lot of these organizations don't really offer that. So Swan spent years going through and creating a resource portal filled with hundreds of organizations that have been proven to provide pro bono um, services for women's Mm -hmm. and, and women's needs. Uh, this resource portal is kind of our, our diamond in the rough. Like it's so important to us and what a woman might do or a woman veteran, a female veteran might do or service member will call us and say, you know, I'm dealing with domestic violence. I need a lawyer. And we'll go through our resource portal and find a, 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 a pro bono lawyer in their area. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's all about, we don't provide the direct services to them but we have created a portal and a, a database that has all verified uh, female specific services for anyone that's in within, that's within need. Mm-hmm. And we're always looking um, just to throw out this plug. We're always looking for organizations and companies that are willing to provide pro bono resources. We always reach out and say, you know, give us a call, give us an email, tell us what you do, what you offer. We'll have a phone call interview, make sure that, you know, what you're offering is what you actually offer. And then we'll add you to the resource portal and you may get 10 hits a month or you may get mm-hmm. 10 hits a decade, who knows. Um, but just to have this, this organization or company within our resource portal is very important because we want women to know that there are um, opportunities out there for them when they are in need. We've um, 
we've been associated, well, what I say, we, the Women Veterans Network, we've been associated with SWAN for a long time. When first started, I got to speak at a SWAN event in DC in hmm. 2017. And I think the thing that struck me the most were the number of women who talked about uh, military sexual trauma. And I'm sitting back thinking, yes. this is still a thing? When <laughs> Wait a minute, what, what's happening here? And then, of course, with everything that's been happening since then. And it was just it brought to it brought it front of, of mind to me that this was still going on, which, you know, just baffles my mind. I, I can't even believe this. But have you seen since being CEO of Swan, have you seen the instances of military sexual trauma go up? Or do you think that it's just a series of it's more at the forefront now that it's being brought to the surface more? I believe it's being brought to the surface more. So we work directly with the SAPRO office, which is um, sexual assault prevention and re prevention and gosh, what does SAPRO stand for? I, I forgot what the R is. Oh, prevention and response office. There we go. Um, that's been uh, created under the DOD. So we work directly with them and we've actually assisted them in creating their, the catch program. Um, so two things, one is that the SAPRO office released a DOD report on sexual assault within the military. And what we found is that it hasn't increased and it hasn't decreased. It's pretty much kind of just stayed, stayed the same, which for women, it's one in, in four. So mm -hmm. one in four women, when they join the military, they will be either assaulted or harassed at some point in their career. Men, it is 10%. Mm -hmm. uh, so one in 10 chance that you will be assaulted or harassed within your military career. That has been the same statistic for decades now. That's, um, that's bad. And, that's horrible. <laughs> yes. 25% chance is, is, is high. It's very high um, as a woman and, as a, as a man, 10% is, is too high as well. Mm -hmm. um, what we found is that the, the DOD is definitely taking steps to be able to make an impact. Um, I think they can move a little quicker on some things, uh, but they did create, the SAPRO office did create the CATS program because what, we, what they found is that oftentimes in the military, when you have a predator and you have someone that has um, assaulted someone or shown signs of, of being dangerous, when you go to a different unit, you, everything that you did in that previous unit is pretty much erased and gone. Mm -hmm. Program kind of keeps up with these predators and it does a secondary thing, which is when you go through and you, and you go into the program or you go into the system and you say, you know, um, Sergeant such and such assaulted me and you fill out an entire report it connects you with other survivors or other women or men that have reported this same predator too. Because oftentimes no one wants to come forward if they feel like they're the only one. Right. There's something about feeling like there's multiple, you feel a little bit more empowered, you feel less alone when there are multiple people that have had the same issue with this person. Mm -hmm. So it kind of leads us to be able to actually hold these people accountable no matter where they are in the world. Um, so that's that's one step. And this CATCH program is very new. I think it's about mm -hmm. a year, two years old. It's a very new program. And there's some kinks in it that they're working out. 
But I, I do think that the DOD is making a lot of steps um, to be able to make this change, especially after uh, uh, PFC Vanessa Guillen mm. and uh, her situation down at Fort Hood. Um, there's in the, the, the I'm Vanessa Guillen Act and all these things that are coming forward and the Military Justice Improvement Act and a bunch of things that are that are that are kind of passing through legislation on the Hill where I see some change coming. I hate that uh, that PFC Vanessa Guillen was kind of was kind of like our mortar. Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to make that change. Um, but I do find that her story really resonated with a lot of people. And I'm, I am thankful for all the great things that's going to come out of the legislation that is being named after her. And I think it's going to be a lot of change taking right. place in the military in the next few years. Let's hope so. It needs to happen. And like yesterday, <laughs> like yeah. long time ago yesterday. Uh, so yes. Two more questions. One, as CEO of SWAN, what kind of things are happening at SWAN that you would like our audience to know about? Any upcoming events or anything that you would like people to know about? Um, I do want to know that we're kind of doing um, a rebrand on SWAN since I've taken over. We're redoing our website and we're making it a little bit more interactive where when a piece of legislation does uh, hit the floor, that you're able to contact your local legislator, you're able to contact your congressman and congresswoman to ask them where do they stand on this, uh, on this piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. What we find is that we, our members want to be involved in what we're doing. They wanna, they wanna be able to email their, their people and say, okay, hey, the Deborah Sampson Act is coming up. What is your plan? How do you plan to vote? So we're gonna have a legislative issues section of our website, which should be launching by March 1st. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna allow uh, members and, and people that visit the website to be able to have pre-populated emails that go directly to their congressman and congresswoman. Uh, and this will allow them a quick, easy button click to be able to, to, to challenge these, these uh, people that we voted into office to make sure that they are keeping us in mind and the things that they vote for. Uh, so that's kind of the main focus that we've been focused on this year mm -hmm. is uh, running out more interactive ways to be able to involve our members. All right, last question. If someone needs to get in contact with SWAN, how would they go about doing that? Just go straight to our website, which is servicewomen.org. Um, all of our information is there, including our email, phone number, um, and all of our social media accounts. Mm -hmm. Well, Deshauna, thank you so much for being on Sisters in Service. It was such a pleasure having you. I know you have to go because you've got other things going on. But thank you so much for taking the time. And if you need to get in contact with Swan, you have the information or you can always contact me. And I will also put that on the website at Sisters in Service. I hope you enjoyed getting to know more about the Service Women's Action Network and Swan CEO, Deshauna Barber. And that you will join us again for episode 13 on March 23rd, where I will have as my guest a local realtor who will reveal some great tips and tricks and information on using your VA benefit to buying a home. In the meantime, please be safe and take care of each other. Until next time. <music>